from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Secretary Lloyd Austin announced on Tuesday that the Pentagon will review the airstrikes in Syria that killed 60 civilians in March 2019. The airstrikes were part of the U.S. and Syrian Democratic Forces strategy to defeat ISIS. General Michael Garrett, commander of U.S. Army Forces Command, will be conducting the review and delivering his results to Secretary Austin within 90 days. The spot for the top weapons buyer at the Pentagon now has a nominee. The Biden administration announced Tuesday that William LaPlante will be nominated to be the next Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. The position has been vacant since January. LaPlante is the former acquisition chief of the Air Force, where he oversaw a $43 billion acquisition portfolio. The Defense Department reports that President Biden has accepted the recommendations from the Pentagon's Global Posture Review. A DOD spokesperson said that the main benefit of the review is its role of informing the Pentagon's approach to the national defense strategy. The review prioritizes the Indo-Pacific region and aims to advance initiatives that would contribute to stability in that region and prevent Chinese military aggression. The U.S. Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, or DEVCOM, has expanded its telework policy to allow for safe and continuous work during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, that flexibility also supports talent attraction and retention for DEVCOM's workforce. John Willison is the deputy to the commanding general of DEVCOM. John, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thank you very much for having us. So what were the challenges that you faced initially as you transitioned to telework in the early phases of the pandemic and then as it continued to drag on? Right. So we've implemented a three-phase approach to, to future of work for us. The first phase, obviously, as everyone was, was reacting to the pandemic, uh, taking care, uh, ensuring the health of our employees, while also making sure that we're getting our mission done. We've moved on to the second phase, which is now more proactively providing flexibilities for our workforce um, and then we'll move ultimately to adopting best practices but in that the challenges are the same that a lot of people face managing a hybrid workforce and again balancing between ensuring the health of our employees while also making sure that we complete a very important mission so you've said that you want to be very disciplined about how you do this but not be prescriptive what do you mean yes we've got 15,000 government employees, our total workforce, when you include our partners, is over 25,000. So we've got a range of different capabilities, a range of different competencies. So it's very difficult to prescribe a certain way to operate. And so what we've adopted is, is two fundamental principles that say work where and when you're most productive. And that's going to be situation dependent. That's going to be uh, project dependent. And so we've had to provide a lot of flexibility to our leaders, to our managers, and to our employees uh, to, to give them that flexibility, but also make sure they're getting done what they need to get done. And so uh, we're prescriptive in the way that we're providing some very broad range guidance, but we are not telling people exactly how they've got to do this. But how are you creating more flexibility in your office? Can you give us a specific example? Sure. Um, so again, we've told people work where and when you're most productive. So we have not told people when they've got to be in the office, where they've got to be, uh, when they've got to work throughout the day. We've given them flexibility. And when we say them, 
We mean the combination of our supervisors and our employees. Uh, we've given them complete flexibility to figure out what works best for them. You know, for some people, there are people that we have that have not been in the office for a year and a half because they've been able to be most productive working remotely. We've got other people that have been in the office pretty much every day in a lab doing high tech work every day. And then you've got everywhere in between. And so that flexibility has really been appreciated by our workforce. And we believe it's we've been we know we've been at least as productive if we as we were before, if not even more productive. So I wanted to ask you about that, John, because how do you really know if workers are, are actually being productive? How do you measure that? That's a great question. Uh, so one of the things that we've been doing is collecting data on, on productivity, and we will continue to do so throughout this, this pilot period. Uh, you know, and so instead of measuring productivity historically, as some people would have by the hours put in, or where people are working. You know, we are, and we have been for a while, uh, measuring productivity based on output. So for us, the research development and engineering that we do, you know, what is the output of that work and, and focusing on measuring output as opposed to you know, measuring the behavior. So now how do your goals, um, how do your initiatives really support the goals for diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility? Because that's of course a big push for the administration. No, great question. And it was a priority for us before this, but but adopting and embracing this future of work construct has really allowed us uh, to, to, to even put that more at the forefront in, in a couple of ways. So first, uh, providing the flexibility to uh, talent that we're trying to attract, talent that we're trying to recruit, taking in some cases the work to the talent allows us to attract an even more diverse workforce by not having to say, you've got to be in this location 100% of the time. And so from a, a diversity perspective, you know, we're in the innovation and problem solving business. And so we want diversity of thought, which comes from a diverse workforce. And so we've already seen the ability to attract people and talent that we weren't able to before because of the flexibility we're providing. And then for our existing workforce, we're able to give them the opportunity to work on projects, to work on uh, it work in different areas that they may have not been able to do before because we were li more limited to location as opposed to really being able to open up opportunities and really be fully inclusive and leverage the broad range of talent we have across the command no matter where people are. And so we absolutely believe this will allow us to, to improve our diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, profile and really be truly inclusive, both for people we're trying to attract and then also for our existing workforce as they think about career development and where they wanna go with their careers. So I wonder what lessons you've learned, John, from the Future of Work initiative and how are you planning to move forward now? Right, so uh, a couple lessons learned, right? So, you know, this is definitely a different way to operate. And so we know we've had to redefine what it means for leaders leaders to be present how do you engage employees how do you manage a hybrid workforce right so there's some important lessons learned that we uh, we continue to to refine and continue to continue to adopt best practices and and that will be the theme moving forward if we're giving our our workforce our teams our organizations you know, it's 15,000 people across 100 different locations worldwide we're giving them a lot of flexibility uh, but we're making sure that we are we are measuring that performance. We're making sure we're keeping our eye on it, and that 
everyone understands what the best practices are and can leverage that going forward. All right. Well, John, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for being on the program. Coming next, Iran wants sanctions lifted immediately, but the U.S. has other plans. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the U.S. can regain its leverage on Iran's nuclear program. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Iran announced on Monday that it wants sanctions to be permanently lifted immediately. This comes as President Biden's envoy joins indirect talks in Vienna with the Iranians on their nuclear program, the first since the new, more conservative regime took power in August. Richard Goldberg is a senior advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Rich, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The meeting in Vienna with Iran um, will be the new regime's first multilateral engagement. What prompted this latest round of talks? Well, we've had uh, some indirect talks now six times uh, throughout the year with the new Biden administration coming in, uh, seeking to return to the old nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA for short, since that's a mouthful. Uh, and they offered Iran to come back into compliance with the JCPOA in exchange the U.S. would lift all the sanctions that had been reimposed by the Trump administration. Uh, the Europeans got involved. Uh, they started brokering indirect talks in Vienna. Uh, those went on several times uh, with the old Rouhani government, uh, the past president of Iran now. Iran, however, was going into an election cycle in June, elected, or as we might say, selected, uh, not exactly a free and fair election in Iran, uh, but the Supreme Leader selected a new president uh, who was uh, Ibrahim Raisi, uh, much more conservative, as you noted, uh, sort of a hardliner, true to the ideals of the Islamic Revolution, uh, somebody uh, who has uh, a lot of blood on his hands uh, back in the 1980s, was the hangman of Tehran for overseeing a lot of executions uh, of the Iranian people, uh, has built a cabinet of uh, people who are under U.S. sanctions for various terrorism and other illicit activities, somebody who's still wanted by Interpol uh, for a bombing of a Jewish center uh, in Argentina back in the 1990s. So really a who's who of, of Iran Terror Inc. now uh, in charge of the country. Uh, and they have their time uh, since uh, taking office to come back to this indirect talk negotiation uh, in Vienna. Uh, but that is what has restarted now. So, Rich, what are the current sanctions in place against Iran? And are they effective? Well, we still have all of the sanctions technically in force uh, and on the table uh, from the Trump administration reimposing all the sanctions that came Back uh, after the United States left the nuclear deal in 2018, those are sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran, on Iran's oil sector, uh, on Iran's entire energy sector writ large, the petrochemical sector, industrial manufacturing sectors, uh, tanker companies, shipping, ports, etc. Uh, we have sanctions uh, on, on the books, uh, at least, on most important sectors of Iran's economy, most of its banks, uh, financial institutions. Uh, insurance companies, et cetera. So we have isolated Iran the financial markets uh, now very effectively driven their oil revenues down, their oil exports down until 2021. Uh, what has happened though is that those sanctions are not enforced at this point. Uh, part of the idea here has been to try to lure Iran back into negotiations, uh, back into the JCPOA. And so what the Biden administration has done is sort of look the other way as uh, China has increased its imports of Iranian oil, as petrochemical sales have increased uh, from Iran. Uh, they've also issued some waivers to Capitol Hill 
uh, suspension temporarily of some of these sanctions to allow Iran to go into its frozen bank accounts in Asia to repay foreign debts. Uh, so this has provided a, a pretty significant amount of economic relief to the regime to get through uh, 2021 uh, and also has decreased U.S. leverage uh, in these talks. So what role does China and Russia play in this whole Iranian nuclear program? Yeah, they play a pretty significant role. Obviously, two permanent members uh, of the Security Council, uh, both parties to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Uh, China, uh, for its part, uh, has been importing oil uh, from Iran for many, many years, uh, sees it uh, as a primary energy source. Uh, but also, more importantly, as it's built out its Belt and Road Initiative uh, across Central Asia, now moving into the Middle East, it sees Iran as a major stop on that Belt and Road Initiative. And so they've signed a 25-year agreement uh, to invest billions of dollars in infrastructure development, uh, perhaps even port developments. Uh, there could be a military foothold for the Chinese uh, in the Middle East at some point. They want to sell arms to Iran. All of that, of course, depends on the U.S. lifting sanctions. So they have a strong interest in seeing that happen. The Russians, of course, as we know, uh, strong allies of the Assad regime in Syria, historic allies of the Iranian regime as well. Uh, they have seen this both uh, from an economic uh, opportunity and a strategic opportunity. Economically, they actually have been the ones to sell uh, nuclear infrastructure to the Iranians over many years in the true civil nuclear program. We think of the Bushir uh, civil nuclear reactor, which is a Russian-made reactor. Uh, but they also have a large arms industry and would love to be selling arms uh, to the regime. They've sold them uh, air defense systems in the past. They'd like to uh, provide conventional arms as well again, dependent on the U.S. Uh, lifting sanctions. So what do you think will come out of the talks in Vienna? At this point, uh, it's very hard to tell. There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of public statements that don't match what we're hearing from inside uh, the two rooms. Of course, they're not talking directly. These are indirect talks with the U.S. in a separate room, passing messages through European interlocutors. Uh, but what it seems is because Iran has become much more confident uh, through the year, with sanctions not being enforced, the economy stabilizing, uh, seeing the United States uh, not uh, so willing to use force uh, when Iran uses force through its proxies in the Middle East, uh, seeing no real accountability as it's escalated its nuclear program through the year, now enriching to 60% level of purity, uh, also producing uranium metal, a key component in nuclear weapons, limiting access to the IAEA, the UN inspection team uh, from Vienna. So I think they're actually looking to start seeing what else they can get. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can find a link to Rich's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, there's new activity in the Arctic and it's not polar bears. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why Russia is militarizing in the coldest part of the world and how to respond. We'll be right back. During the June 2021 summit with the Russian leader, President Biden talked to Putin about the Arctic remaining a, quote, region of cooperation rather than conflict. But there has been increased Russian militarization in the region. Jim Townsend is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy. He's currently adjunct senior fellow for the Transatlantic Security Program at CNAS. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Russia is militarizing in the Arctic. Are their actions solely defensive? 
Well, that's a, an important point. Um, since the Northern Sea Route opened up, which is that new maritime uh, channel that still has a lot of ice in it, uh, but in Northern Russia, uh, the Russians feel that they need to begin to do things to protect it. Uh, and so I think you're right. A lot of it can be seen as defensive. But uh, as you get further and further towards North Norway and the bastion where the Russians protect their submarine fleet and their surface fleet in the Arctic, um, it's, it's becoming increasingly militarized to the point where it could be a, a jumping off place for something that might be more offensive. So Russia recently tested a hypersonic missile that was launched from a submarine in that area. What are the implications of that? Well, and that's a great point to, to, to make in terms of illustrating whether we're seeing something that is worrisome or not. Um, the, the, the launch of a hypersonic missile uh, is worrisome in its, in, in its own right. Uh, there's right now a bit of an arms race between Russia, China, and the United States on hypersonics, and we are as engaged as the Russians and Chinese are. But the important point is, as you point out, that launch took place uh, way up uh, in the Norwegian Sea, up in the Arctic. Uh, and that's different in the sense that during the Cold War, for the Russians to launch uh, a missile that might be threatening to the United States, they'd have to go down into the Atlantic. Uh, and that gave us ample opportunities to try to intercept that submarine. But as you point out, they're now able to launch them from within that protective bastion. It's harder for us to have uh, any type of uh, defense against that unless we go up there with our submarines and we don't want to have that kind of thing happen. Well, the U.S. is currently cooperating with Russia in the Arctic. What, what are the points of cooperation between the two countries? Well, that's that's a very important uh, illustration for uh, for all of us to understand is that we're not at knife points right now with the Russians up there. We're worried more about the potential of what could happen should militarization, if you will, get out of hand, because today uh, there is cooperation between the United States and Russia in the Arctic and, and among all the Arctic nations that are part of the Arctic Council. But I think what's most important is off of Alaska, uh, there is a lot of uh, cooperation between the Russian Coast Guard and the U.S. Coast Guard almost on a routine basis. Uh, they work very closely with each other in a, in a very unhospitable climate up there. Uh, and so search and rescue and uh, that type of thing, environmental work, those are the areas where we in fact cooperate quite a bit. Well, Europe is also involved in this, obviously, uh, a lot of European countries. How united are the U.S. and Europe in their approach to the region, how they're dealing with Russia? Um, for instance, are they sharing intelligence? Well, that's a great, great question, too. I, I would say that uh, Europe and the United States are more united about their concerns about the Arctic and uh, Russian uh, Russian activities in the Arctic than we have been in the past. In the past, before uh, the Northern Sea Route opened up, uh, certainly uh, Norway had a lot of concerns about Russia and stability in the Arctic. Uh, that's their backyard. And I think there was a feeling in Oslo that uh, NATO and the European nations, the United States, didn't appreciate their security concerns as much. Now, however, I think given uh, the, the, the militarization up there, given the activity uh, that we see uh, along the coast of Norway and uh, in the uh, Norwegian and Arctic seas, I think the alliance knows it needs to have some kind of role to play in terms of security concerns in the Arctic and particularly to support Norway. 
And NATO as well then. I mean, what role should NATO play in this situation? Well, NATO is trying to figure that out right now. Uh, NATO has a lot of problems <laughs> in Europe. We were watching every day in the headlines about uh, Poland and Belarus and Russian troops along the uh, along Ukraine as uh, well the, with the border there. So uh, there is a NATO role. Uh, NATO is trying to determine that as it negotiates the strategic concept, which lays out where NATO goes in the future. And we will see in that strategic concept, which will be approved in a few months in Madrid at a summit, you'll see what NATO has decided for its role. And I think right now, primarily, that'll be uh, maritime domain awareness up there, making sure that the alliance knows what's happening uh, in the Norwegian and Arctic seas, keeping an eye on things there, and exercising so that if something should happen, if we needed to take care of Norway, uh, alliance forces would be able to operate in the Arctic. And finally, Jim, what are your recommendations to the Pentagon to enhance guardrails, guard if you will, to reduce the risk of conflict? Well, that's what we really need to do right now, I think, is to uh, to to do what we've done in the past with the Soviet Union uh, when we were in danger of having an accidental bumping between us, the Soviet Navy and the U.S. Navy. We, we developed rules of the road for both navies. We both agreed on uh, how we can we can go about avoiding something accidental. Uh, to make sure there were no surprises on the high seas. And so the incidents at sea agreement was uh, was reached. And we've suggested uh, to the Pentagon that we need an, something like that for the Arctic so that we can keep that area a place for cooperation. We can keep that area free of accidents, uh, miscalculation, something where we have no surprises so that uh, uh, we, can, we can keep a Kind of, kind of manage the militarization that's happening there. All right. Well, Jim, thanks so much. I appreciate you being on the program. You can find a link to Jim's work at govmatters.tv resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website. And we want to hear from you on LinkedIn. Last week, we posted a survey to ask what you think is the best way to bring skilled workers into government jobs. 51% of you said the answer was streamlining the hiring process. You can vote in this week's poll on our LinkedIn page, Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.